In China's far west, the ghost of Mao is rising. Muslim Uyghurs are under attack in a state-sanctioned wave of ethnic repression on a scale not seen since the Cultural Revolution. Today, as many as one million Uyghurs are detained in Xinjiang province, and according to Human Rights Watch, the degree of internment, harassment, torture, and surveillance is unprecedented. And yet, despite abundant and compelling evidence, China continues to deny the existence of clandestine political re-education camps and says only that its actions are a necessary response to the region's terrorism and religious extremism. What's going on in Xinjiang, and what can the world do about it? Unfounded slander, defamatory rumors. These are the terms that Beijing's been using to push back against accusations that they're holding a million people. Most Uyghurs practice Islam and speak a Turkic language that's completely different from Mandarin Chinese. 10 million of them live mostly in the Xinjiang region of Western China. Ethnic tensions have risen over the years since 1949 after the communist government encouraged the mass migration of Han Chinese. For my guest today, these are questions that the international community simply cannot ignore. James Leibold is an expert on ethnic conflict in China and associate professor at La Trobe University in Australia. He joins me on the line from his office in Melbourne. Hi, James. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us today on this edition of PS Editor's Podcast. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Well, the topic is certainly an important one uh, and one that we're very interested to hear your thoughts on. So let's get right to the conversation. If we could, let's start with the background on what's happening in Xinjiang. You recently wrote and quoted Georgetown's James Millwood, who is one of the world's leading experts on Xinjiang. And he said that, quote, cultural cleansing is Beijing's attempt to find a final solution to the Xinjiang problem. Now, that's a very chilling phrase, given its association with the Nazis' policy toward Europe's Jews. In China's view, what is the, quote, problem? And what are its leaders doing to solve it? Yeah, well, uh, those are strong words uh, from Professor Millward. And um, I, I think some would argue that kind of Nazi metaphors are probably inappropriate in this case. But clearly what's happening in the case of Xinjiang, the far western region of China, is we're seeing a sharpening of a longstanding colonial relationship between the Han majority in China, which really dominates the Chinese Communist Party, and the 10 million or so uh, uh, Uyghurs, uh, as well as some, some uh, million or so Kazakhs, who are also Muslims in the far western region of China. And uh, in the eyes of, of Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party, they believe they have a problem with what they call the, the three evils, that is uh, splitism, extremism, and terrorism. And they, uh, well, well they, they claim that this is not uh, particular to any ethnic group, but clearly they believe that the problem is rooted in the radicalization uh, of uh, the Muslim population in Xinjiang and their desire for a, a separate uh, homeland free from uh, Chinese control. And so this uh, tension, as I said, this kind of colonial relationship goes back over 100 years, uh, if, if, if not longer, but it's really come to a head in, um, in the last couple of years under the regime of Xi Jinping. I mean, these tensions were also present in the post-9-11 era as well, I assume. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the the issue, the concerns with uh, Islam, uh, you know, this is a global uh, problem uh, that we uh, saw, you know, post 9-11. And uh, at that stage, uh, as the Americans were saying, we have a problem with uh, with Islamic extremism. The Chinese were saying, hey, yes, we, we have a similar problem in Xinjiang. The, the problem is that they were using the, the pretext of that to push forward more radical policies, assimilative policies. And in some regards, those uh, more hard-edged policies have backfired because what it did it is did uh, push uh, many, many Uyghurs and other Muslims towards Islam. And, and we did see uh, the radicalization of a, a small minority of the Uyghur population and then, uh, then uh, the outbreak of uh, a number of terror attacks, including uh, a car bombing uh, in uh, Tiananmen uh, Square in the heart of Beijing, as well as a terrible uh, attack on the Kunming train station, uh, where a number of innocent civilians were were literally uh, butchered to death, and so it's this you know it's become a kind of uh, self uh, perpetuating prophecy of sorts uh, that China said it has a, a problem with Islam, it, it, it adopts hearted policies, and then that problem you know becomes a reality. Uh, so you've got this sort of cycle of, of insecurity, securitization, and then violence that has really gripped uh, Xinjiang for the last couple of decades. Mm, okay. Now, you recently noted, and you mentioned just now Tiananmen uh, and some, some attacks there. You've said in some of your work that the Chinese government's action in Xinjiang is the most serious human rights violation in China since the Tiananmen Square crackdown in 1989. <laughs> Troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. But that incident was about democracy, and this is about religion. Why is religion as dangerous to the Communist Party of China as democracy? Yeah, I, I think there is a good parallel. I do think the two of them are seen as uh, existential threats to the political monopoly uh, uh, that the Chinese Communist Party holds on power in China. Um, just like ideas of democracy and freedom uh, motivated students to demonstrate in Tiananmen Square and across a whole range of cities in, in 1989, religion as well can motivate people to stand up against uh, the party, to advocate and mobilize for the overthrow of the party. And we saw that. Uh, we've seen that happen in the past, probably most recently through the uh, demonstration of Falun Gong practitioners who gathered literally on the footsteps of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing and really shocked uh, the party with the, the speed and ability uh, of its uh, followers to mobilize. And so the reaction there was to develop a very systematic campaign to eradicate uh, Falun Gong from uh, Falun Gong practitioners from China. And in the case of, uh, of Islam in uh, Xinjiang, and, and uh, we've seen a very similar uh, strategy develop uh, where uh, members of the Uyghur and Kazakh uh, ethnic minorities are uh, being subjected to uh, patriotic uh, re-education uh, without legal recourse, either in non-custodial or, or even uh, mass internment camps, where uh, literally they are trying to be uh, re-engineered by the party state to 
eradicate them of the uh, the disease, the quote unquote disease of of extremism, but also to 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 get them to denounce their 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 very uh, ethnic identity. Mm. Yeah, I mean the Falun Gong example that you mentioned dates back to the '90s. Um, and, and the application of the blueprint that you've just laid out for the current situation is apt. I also think it's interesting that in the, in, in the case of the Uyghurs, China really tested out its transnational or extraterritorial strategy and, and, and actually did a lot of work in uh, rooting out or attacking or squeezing Falun Gong members in Australia. Um, now China's bigger, more powerful, richer, uh, and it has longer tentacles. And it's, it's taking this fight to Uyghurs and Tibetans as well, uh, and the Falun Gong, and anyone that China has an issue with on a global scale, which is really challenging for, for governments and pro-democracy uh, supporters the world, the world over. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you hit on something. I mean, under this uh, so-called new era of Chinese power under Xi Jinping, there's, a, there's a, a, both a, a kind of confidence, if not hubris, on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party a belief that its views uh, should not be challenged and a willingness to use its newfound power to uh, eradicate any threats to instability or, or, or anyone really who has a, a, a view that's contrary to, their, to, to the political line at the moment. Um, and so we see that uh, newfound power both externally in its more aggressive foreign policy, but as well as it's uh, far more repressive domestic policies that, that, you know, not only target minorities like the, the Uyghurs, but also human rights advocates, um, you know, Christians, uh, labor organizers, uh, anyone who's willing up to, 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 to stand in the way of the or, or, or indirectly or directly challenge the authority of the party. Yeah, I want to explore that hubris for a second. Uh, it's worth remembering that we've seen this movie before in, in Tibet. I mean, the current party secretary of Xinjiang, Chen uh, Kuanghua, he's held that post before in the Tibetan Autonomous Region. But the party's attempts to pacify Tibet, some could argue, didn't really work. I mean, economic development, jobs, education. Tibetans uh, still advocate for religious freedom. Uh, they still protest. They self-immolate. Why do you think China thinks that Chen's work in Xinjiang will be any more successful if those are the measures of success than they were in Tibet? Yeah, I, I guess I slightly disagree with you. I think that Chen uh, has been viewed as, as successful in Tibet. Uh, if you look at when he came to power in Tibet, off the top of my head, I can't the exact year, but it was around the time of the self-emulations, well, they, they have largely been eradicated. Right, so that would be about 2011, 2012, I think. Yeah, 2011 and 12. I mean, the, the, you, when's the last time you had a, a self-emulation that was publicly reported? Um, there have been a, a few in the last couple of years, but most of them ended around 2013. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. A lot of them are outside the TAR now, um, or any of the, the, and, the protests are outside. Yeah, and you could say the same thing about the terror attacks in Xinjiang. We really haven't had a major terror attack since probably 2015 uh, or early 2016. And so his kind of very uh, heavy-handed uh, securitization approach, uh, I think, is viewed in Beijing as being successful. And it is eliminated, at least uh, in the short term, sources of instability 
arguably it's it's driven them uh, underground um, and they certainly could resurface and might resurface if there was any weakening in party rule in these two regions. But I, I, I think in the eyes of, of, of party leaders in Beijing, his policies have been viewed as, as wide, widely successful. Uh, so, I mean, over, over time, we'll have to watch how these policies play out. It seems that uh, certainly in the, the case of these re-education camps, it, it seems to be a pretty radical uh, policy that I, I think it's hard to understand how that could end in a, in a way that would be favorable to party rule. But at the same time, it's just one element of the party's attempt to, to literally re-engineer uh, frontier societies like, uh, like Tibet and Xinjiang. Camp it looks like a school made of red bricks, a very vast area. We had guards around us all the time. And I would think, why are we here? Um, why don't we just die instead of facing such hardship? The voice that you just heard belongs to an interpreter who's translating an interview with a man who says he was detained in an internment camp in Xinjiang. Xinjiang is a remote region in northwestern China. Recently, police there have allegedly detained massive numbers of Muslim ethnic minorities, mostly Uyghurs. There have been credible estimates of between 800,000 to 1 million people from this region being held at political re-education centers. A Wall Street Journal investigation indicates that people were taken to these camps against their will, without any kind of due process. The Chinese government has been fighting a sporadically violent separatist movement in Xinjiang for decades. Chinese officials dismiss allegations of mass incarceration. They describe the camps as vocational schools for criminals involved in minor offenses. Yeah, let's talk, uh, if we could, just briefly about the specifics in terms of what we know about these camps. China's leaders say this is all about rooting out terrorism, as you note, um, and they deny that there are any sorts of uh, re-education camps, only vocational education and employment training centers for criminals. What do you make of such claims, and what do we know for certain? Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I agree. I think the starting point is that uh, there's a lot of there's a lot that we don't know uh, about what's happening in Xinjiang, and what uh, a group of scholars uh, as well as journalists have been trying to do over the last couple of years is piece together from a range of bits and pieces of information, most of it uh, information from uh, from inside China. Uh, uh, about what's happening. And clearly, following these terror attacks in 2014, uh, the party state announced a, a campaign to root out uh, extremism. Um, and in uh, 2014, 15, uh, early parts of 16, this is a very targeted approach, identifying people who were believed to be radicalized and then subjecting them to really intense one-on-one -on -one, uh, educational transformation, as it's referred to in Chinese. Uh, but at some stage, the, after Chen Chengguo came across as party secretary uh, in late uh, 2016, early 2017, there's, this, there's a change in strategy. And uh, the, there appears to have been a kind of frustration in the ability, the inability of the party to fully transform uh, Uyghur and Kazakh society and a move towards uh, concentrated educational transformation uh, in in the form of these uh, these camps. And, and I mean, how many of these camps exist, where they're at, how big they are? I mean, these things have been pieced together by Adrian Zenz by looking at some construction bid contracts as well as 
Shan Zhang by looking at uh, Google Map imagery. Uh, and we've had some reporting uh, from individuals who managed to escape these camps uh, and are now uh, in exile in, in Kazakhstan. But all, all of it are bits and pieces of, uh, of a full picture that we still don't have about what is happening inside these these camps. But, I, you know, I take the, the government's response at the U.N., uh, to, to essentially to acknowledge that uh, that some type of mass uh, detention uh, is occurring, uh, and we should point out this is extrajudicial. These people don't have legal recourse, uh, but they're being uh, subjected uh, without choice uh, to uh, attend these uh, these vocational training or 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 legal education training centers, um, and, and we still don't have a full picture of what's happening inside them. Uh, but past history, as both in China as well as globally, can suggest that uh, probably it's a, a very coercive form uh, of uh, uh, political indoctrination. You know, I wonder about the opinion of the the general public. However, you know, are there sympathies for what's happening in Xinjiang, or is the public, uh, the general Chinese public, kind of in the dark as much as the West is? You know, I think generally speaking, uh, there's probably very little knowledge about current policies in Xinjiang amongst the, you know, the vast majority of uh, the Han Chinese public. That said, uh, if, if uh, to the extent they know what's happening, I think they would be broadly sympathetic to the, uh, the, the, the government's policy. <laughs> I mean, there is a, uh, a very nasty uh, strain of Islamophobia that runs throughout the, much of the Han public. This has been whipped up uh, on the Chinese internet, part of a global trend. Uh, you know, it's not unique to China, but you know, uh, Muslims are viewed, uh, I mean, have long been viewed as you know, sort of uh, at the best um, thieves, at worst, you know, uh, religious fanatics that can't be trusted and and should be feared. And and I think uh, the public would be quite sympathetic of the party's efforts to kind of, uh, at the very least, kind of. Uh, lock them away, but if not to kind of try to transform them uh, and civilize them. That said, I think it is important to note that, you know, there are quite a few Chinese liberals, both inside China and outside of China, who are, are deeply concerned about what's happening in Xinjiang. It's not purely uh, an issue that uh, is of concern in, in the liberal West. Um, you know, there, there, there are liberals I know inside of China, colleagues of mine, that that are very concerned about this, but but also don't feel like they're in a position to speak out about yeah, this. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's not forget that you know China isn't just surveilling its ethnic minorities. I mean, these you know stories of the social credit system, which are essentially grading people on their commitment to the party and and Chinese nationalism. I mean, it's dangerous to support uh, policies or ideas that run counter to CPC policy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's part of a much bigger trend of trying. A kind of obsession with uh, stability maintenance uh, that really emerges in the party after after the Tiananmen uh, student movement, as well as the collapse of the Soviet Union. That that you know the the the, the stability maintenance needs to be put at the very front of the party's agenda. And it needs to use all tools it can to eliminate any opposition to its rule. It's you know it, it, it demonstrates the kind of what Susan Shirk called the the deep kind of insecurity uh, of this uh, fragile uh, superpower. Mm. Well, is it sustainable, that, that approach, that, that kind of 
top-down well, management of people? <laughs> yeah, normally you'd say no, but I mean, the way in which they're innovating with new forms of high-tech uh, surveillance suggests, you know, as long, you know, there seems to be widespread support for, for example, the social credit system amongst the middle classes. Because I think, you know, the middle classes are deeply invested in the party state system. And what they fear the most is probably those lower down the chain. It's a, it's a complicated picture. I think the real threat would be, uh, you know, amongst amongst the ordinary, you know, kind of lower class uh, people in China, you know, it, but but they've shown very little ability to kind of organize collectively. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the party has lots of tools to kind of try to snuff out any any opposition. So we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, surveillance, one of the things about surveillance, though, is it does undermine trust. And that can be quite detrimental to, uh, to um, you know, stability over time, as well as economic development. And so that, you know, this, that could be the undoing of the party state, hmm. uh, this, this lack of uh, social trust. And, and ultimately, if the economy were to, to you know, hit a serious road bump, Right. Uh, that, you know, all bets are off and, um, you know, uh, any anything is possible. Now, so let's wrap up by bringing this back to the to the situation in Xinjiang. Does China suffer from this at all? Well, not economically, but certainly rep, uh, in terms of its reputation, I think it's it's damaging. And we've seen it, you know, uh, for, for a long time, uh, it denied any problems, but it's responded quite forcefully uh, over the last month, I would say, uh, in terms of, you know, running a number of articles as well as getting, um, uh, you know, ambassadors uh, in countries like the U.S. and uh, even I saw in, in, in Indonesia, Jakarta Times ran a piece saying, you know, everything's happy all ethnic groups are happy in Xinjiang just uh, just today. Uh, so China wants to be loved and respected on the global stage, and uh, criticism about its policies in Xinjiang sting. But of course, uh, you know, a sting isn't the same as you know the decline uh, of China's economy because countries decide that they don't want to do business with China because the the, the policies in Xinjiang are detrimental to its uh, national interests or national values so I you know I, this is this is this is not uh, one of the biggest problems that the party state faces uh, but but it has been interesting it's interesting it's it's become a kind of interesting wedge issue globally for countries like the US Australia uh, where it's uh, it's forcing people to uh, think hard about what the party represents under Xi Jinping, and whether uh, those the values might be at odds with uh, some of the uh, values that are core to Western liberal democracies. Mm, okay, but so if countries aren't going to distance themselves economically from China, what options are there to affect change in Xinjiang? You know, some argue engagement is really the only option. What do you think? Well, I think it's going to be very hard uh, to change policy in Xinjiang. Um, that said, I do think we have a kind of moral obligation to to speak out when there are human rights abuses on the scale of what's occurring in Xinjiang today. Um, I think it's incumbent on governments uh, to uh, not only express concern, but to, to denounce policies like this. Um, and, and the best thing we can do is, you know, speak up publicly, try to name and shame uh, um, uh, Beijing, but also try to work with 
other uh, like-minded individuals in the, the greater Sinosphere. We have to remember, you know, the, the party does not represent uh, China, the Chinese people globally. Uh, and there, there are many people, Chinese people inside the mainland or in Hong Kong, Taiwan, or living overseas uh, that do share uh, many uh, of the values that we cherish in, in, in the West. And, and are abhorred by uh, these coercive policies that are being implemented in Xinjiang. And I think we need to work with them. Uh, so, yes, engage, but engage with the right type of people. Well, I think that's a good place to end it, James. A sobering overview of what's happening in Xinjiang, but a hopeful place to end the conversation. Pleasure to be with you, Greg. That was James Leibold, an associate professor at La Trobe University in Australia and author of Ethnic Policy in China, Is Reform Inevitable? That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.